I don't know if you knew this or not, but the Italian astronomer and physicist Galileo was a Christian. Maybe you didn't care, but he was. Uh, he is remembered in history for making some important scientific discoveries and in the process challenging the traditional thinking of his day. He is most famous for his invention of the telescope in 1609. Using his telescope and the Bible, he began to make spectacular discoveries about the heavenly bodies, the sun, the stars, the galaxy, and even about our own earth. Now, among his discoveries was the idea that the earth was not the center of the universe, nor was it even the center of our solar system. The entire universe did not revolve around the earth as was popular, popularly taught in those days. He even showed his discoveries to Pope Paul V, but the church turned on him and attacked him. And they told him that the earth was the center of God's creation, and if anything else was the center, it would be like the earth was worshiping that, uh, which would be idol worship. So in 1632... Galileo was called before the leaders of the Inquisition and he was to answer charges that his writings contradicted the church's teaching and tradition. He was 70 years old at the time and he was at very least uh, threatened with torture. The outcome was that Galileo was forced to recant his beliefs and state that his observations about the earth moving around the sun were errors and heresy. However, after, even after he recanted, he was placed under house arrest and treated badly by church officials until he became blind and feeble, and he died on a cold winter's day in 1642 with his son and two of his pupils at his side. Of course, as we all know, Galileo was right. And the church was wrong, terribly wrong, because it was resistant to change. It resisted anything new. Now, Jesus ran into a very similar problem when he began his ministry some 2,000 years ago. At the very outset of what he was trying to do, he received criticism for trying to do things differently for trying to change things. Time after time, the Jewish leaders and the religious people of that day questioned Jesus, even condemned him for trying to do something new. And we see one of those incidents in Luke chapter 5, the parable that we've selected for today, beginning with verse 33. And Jesus responds to their questioning with this story. Let me explain some of the cultural differences that Jesus was trying to overcome before we read the story. Today in the Middle East, just like in the time of Christ, there were communities uh, which live in remarkable isolation from the rest of the world. Frequently in these communities, the highest ideal, the highest value is nothing changes. Nothing. The highest compliment for a person in one of these communities is to be called a preserver of the traditions and customs. 
This is what Jesus was up against when he came on the scene, and this is what he addresses in his parable. The incident begins with some religious people asking him a question. Verse 33 says, One day some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Now, they're saying, why do you do things differently, Jesus? Why are you rocking the boat? Why are you threatening the status quo? Why are you going against tradition and custom? Why don't you and your disciples fast like everybody else does? See, earlier in chapter 5, the Pharisees had just gotten upset with Jesus for spending time with tax collectors and sinners. He was going to parties, and he was taking his disciples with him. And then, worst of all, he was calling it ministry. And the Pharisees didn't like that. They didn't think this was the way that a godly man ought to act. But even though Jesus did a lot of things they didn't agree with, the only item that they confront him on is his lack of fasting. You see, at that time, it was mandatory for all Jews to fast. If you didn't fast, others looked down on you and they said, Oh, look at him, he's not very holy. See, the Pharisees had fasting down to a science. They would fast every Monday and Thursday, and they would whiten their faces with ash so that everyone could see that they were fasting. Now, of course, fasting itself was somewhat hypocritical because the fast only lasted from sunrise to sunset. And they could eat as much as they wanted before or after the fast. Their prayer was also very regimented. They would pray promptly at noon, at 3, and at 6 o'clock, no matter where they were, what they were doing. And some of them, if they knew that prayer time was approaching, would hurry out to a, a, a place, street corner, in the marketplace, so that everyone could observe them praying. You see, their prayers were also hypocritical. But prior to verse 33, we see Jesus and his disciples eating and drinking and laughing and having a good time. And this was different from the way the Pharisees did things. This was different from the way the disciples of John the Baptist did things. In fact, a parallel account here in Matthew chapter 9 tells us that it is a disciple of John the Baptist who asked Jesus the question, both the Pharisees and the disciples of John were a little confused by the way Jesus was doing things. So they came to Jesus and they pull him off to one side and they say, now Jesus, you're kind of new to this whole ministry thing and you're kind of young, so we want to help you out. We want to give you a few tips that we've learned over the years. We've been doing ministry for a long time and we know how to do it and our disciples are well-trained. We all agree that you're doing too much eating and drinking and partying and hanging out with too many sinners. And if you want your ministry to be effective, you need to do more fasting and praying. That would be the place to start. And you know what Jesus tells them? He says, hey, <laughs> you've got it all wrong. You think that you're not following God unless you're miserable. Well, I'm here to tell you 
And I'm here to change all that. I'm here to show you that serving God can actually be enjoyable. Look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while they while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. This is Jesus' answer. The bridegroom is always a symbol for Jesus Christ in Scripture. And so the friends of the bridegroom refer to Christ's disciples. And basically Jesus says the friends of the bridegroom do not fast when he's They celebrate. They don't fast. They feast. And one of the main reasons people fast, at least for the, uh, the biblical reason, is to pray for things. And in the Old Testament times, most people fasted to pray that the Messiah would come. So now Jesus is saying, you don't need to fast. I'm here. The Messiah is here. After I leave, you can fast again. But for now, don't fast. Let's feast. You remember Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2? We read there about a wedding feast that was, had lasted a full week. There was eating and drinking and feasting. There was certainly some Jewish dancing. And when the bridegroom and his friends are together, it is a time to celebrate. Nobody fasts at a wedding. It would be rude to do that. So that is Jesus' answer. The religious people want to know why Jesus and his disciples don't fast like they do. And he tells them that he's going to do ministry a whole new way. And Jesus illustrates this point with three word pictures or three parables across the next several verses. And the first picture is of a piece of clothing and it shows us that Jesus did not come to patch up old garments. Jesus brings new garments. Look at verse 36. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. Now think of an old pair of jeans which have holes in them. And to fix them, you need a piece of scrap cloth to sew on as a patch. My mother did that for us a lot when we were kids. I remember it well. Now if you, we sew a new piece of cloth onto an old piece of clothing, after a while the patch will tear away because it shrinks in the wash while the old piece of clothing does not. And while this is the metaphor that Jesus is using to teach a lesson here, this is not all that Jesus has in mind for them to learn. Sometimes Jesus' parables are humorous, and this one definitely is. But Jesus is not talking about patching up an old garment, an old piece of cloth. He says, no one puts a piece from a new garment from the new piece of clothing onto an old one, or the new piece will make it tear. It won't match. But even more obvious, why would you want to cut up the new piece of clothing in order to patch the old? Just throw away the old and wear the new one. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, the way you were all serving God was okay when it was new was a good pair of jeans God gave it to you with the Old Testament law but you know what it's old now 
It's full of holes. And I'm here to try and patch it up. To make it last another few months. I'm here to bring you something completely new. I'm here to hand out new clothes. So don't go cutting up uh, to patch your old, something new to patch up your old clothes. Just wear the new clothes. You see, up to this point, the Jews had been trying to live according to the law. But the law could never, ever make them righteous. It all could do was simply cover their sin. And now Jesus is saying, look, you're still wearing your old clothes, folks. They're stained, they're soiled, they're full of holes. The Old Testament law can never, ever make you new again. But I've come to give you brand new clothes, clothes of righteousness. Don't try to cut them up to patch the old clothes. Just wear the new ones. And the lesson for us is that we do not achieve our salvation by obeying the law, but by believing in Jesus Christ. We're not made acceptable to God by obeying the law, but by receiving the love and the grace of Jesus. Jesus came to hand out fresh new clothes, free of charge, to all who would believe. Jesus is offering a whole new way of eternal life, free of charge to all who would believe in him. He is offering a new way of doing ministry, ministry that is full of rejoicing and celebration rather than strict adherence to laws and regulations. It's out with the old and it's in with the new. But then Jesus paints them a second picture. He goes a step further. He says in verses 37 and 38, no one puts new wine in old wineskins. For the new wine will burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. Now in the Bible, wine is always a symbol of joy and festivity and celebration. And so in these two verses, Jesus is saying that if we want the joy and festivity that he brings to last, we must put it in a new container. The new wine must have a new wineskin. And just as the picture in verse 36 of cutting up the new clothes to patch the old would have made people laugh, what Jesus suggests here would have also brought laughter to his audience. Everybody knew how to make wine, and nobody in their right mind would put new wine into an old wineskin. You see, wineskins were made from goat skin. The goats were slaughtered, the hides were cleaned and cured, the hides were sewn up and the holes where the legs had been were tied up, and the spout of the wineskin was where the neck would be. And newly pressed wine was poured into the wineskin through the neck, and when it was full, the neck was tied to make the skin airtight, and over time, juice would ferment in order to make wine. And the fermentation process produced gas, and this gas would cause the goat skin to expand. And once the skin was used as a, as a wineskin, it had been stretched already to its limit. And after the wine was poured out of it, it would not shrink back to normal. And it would stay fully stretched out. And so if it, somebody came along and poured new wine into this old wineskin, when the wine started to ferment and produce the gas, the skin would start to stretch some more and would reach its limit and would burst. So that the new wine and this wineskin would both be ruined. Now in this second picture, Jesus continues to show that he's bringing something totally new and he doesn't, it doesn't mix with the old. And we saw that 
that with the picture of the clothes already, the new wine in this second picture is equivalent to the new clothes in verse 36. The new wine and the new clothes are a picture of the new gospel message that eternal life is by faith in Christ alone. And the new way of doing ministry is through celebration and joy rather than duty. But now we have this new element, the wineskins. What are the wineskins in the second picture? Perhaps we should view them as new methods of doing ministry. In Jesus' context, the law was uh, had fulfilled its purpose, and now it was being fulfilled in Jesus. The old ways had been stretched to their limits. He couldn't, uh, they could not hold the new wine of the gospel. There was very little room for joy, for celebration in the law. There were too many things to keep track of, too many sins to avoid, too many obligations and responsibilities. Jesus was bringing something completely different, a whole new way of thinking and living. And the new wineskin is the grace of God. Grace is flexible, it stretches, it holds together all sorts of circumstances and people, it covers all things and encompasses everything. And grace is what God what allows God to give us eternal life simply by believing in Jesus. And no matter how bad our life may have been in the past, grace takes us in. The law could never allow for that. The law was rigid. It would not allow many people in, but grace is that all of our sin, we sang that hymn last week, didn't we? Grace is greater than all of our sin. It can take in every one of us. It can take in everyone in the world. The gospel of grace allows anyone to be welcomed into God's kingdom if we just believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And beyond that, grace allows us to be joyful in doing ministry. You see, the law provided no room for flexibility, no room for differences. It said, here are 613 things that you must do to fit in with us. And if you miss any of them, well, too bad. You're just simply out. But grace gives us the freedom to be different. It gives us the ability to agree and to disagree. It gives us the privilege of overlooking someone's sin and forgiving someone time and time and time again. And even with, uh, even with grace, though, there are some central things that we must stand firm on. We stand firm on the deity of Christ, don't we? We stand firm on the, the authority of Scripture. We stand firm on salvation by faith in Christ and a few others. But grace covers us all and surrounds us and, and we can be joyful and we can love each other even if we disagree with each other, even when we hurt each other. See, when grace is present, life is a celebration and there is joy in all things. There's a spirit of openness. There's a spirit of forgiveness. There's a spirit of compassion. When grace is absent, there's a lot of finger pointing and name calling and Bible bashing and criticism of people. There's no room for differences. There's no room for disagreements. That's because grace is concerned with the heart while the law is concerned with external activity. 
Grace asks what your heart feels about worshiping and about serving. Law says it doesn't matter what you feel as long as you check everything off your list. Check all the boxes. Grace says I love to worship God whenever and wherever I can and I'll worship him as much as I can. And the law says you're not really doing devotions unless you do them first thing in the morning and at least a half hour and you're not really a Christian unless you tithe 10% and attend church at least 75% of the time, and oh, by the way, you better enjoy it. See, that's law. I grew up in a church culture that talked about grace, but really lived by the law. All the problems in life were the result of sin. Every strong emotion was sinful. Becoming a Christian fixed all of life's problems. Drinking and going to movies and playing cards were wrong for Christians to do. We were taught to live by the law. We didn't learn about grace. Jesus is saying that his new way of doing things will be based entirely upon grace. The new clothes are the new gospel and are, are the new gospel and the new way of doing ministry. The new wineskin is the grace which gives us joy and freedom in a way that the law could never give us. But then Jesus, you know, he knew that they had a hard time understanding all of this, so he gives them a third word picture here. And in this picture, he basically says that this new way of doing things is going to take some getting used to. Look at verse 39. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. Now, this verse is kind of confusing to some because it's true that the old wine tastes better. Wine gets better with age. Jesus is not disagreeing with that. The old wine versus the new wine doesn't mean aged wine versus fresh wine. He's talking about a kind of wine people have been drinking for years and a new or different kind of wine. Now, I'm not a wine connoisseur, but I am told that people develop a certain taste for a certain kind of wine. Some people prefer, others prefer white. Some people prefer a particular brand. And generally, when they're presented with a new kind of wine that they're not used to, they may not like it initially. Now, this is what Jesus is saying here in his, te- in his teaching about grace. He is simply asserting that what he is teaching will not be immediately accepted. There's going to be resistance because the old and the familiar status quo will always seem better to people because it's not threatening. The new way of doing things demands that we change, and people don't like to change. People who are used to functioning under the law don't immediately like grace. It's uncomfortable. It seems too loose. There's no list. There's no boundaries. You may... You mean uh, there's not a list of guidelines that I have to follow in order to be spiritual, Ron? Nope. But I like guidelines. I like rules. Do I understand it correctly to say that grace should forgive a person who sins against me every time they do it? I have to keep forgiving them forever? Yes. Oh, I don't like that. There should be a limit, you know, like seven times or no more forgiveness. Sorry. Grace is unlimited. True grace also allows for the possibility that people will abuse it. At least that's what Paul says in Romans 
chapters 5 and 6, and this is a hard thing for some people to swallow. It's hard to allow for that kind of risk. So at the first taste of grace, most people prefer the old law. Grace takes some getting used to, but if we give it time, we will end up enjoying it more than we ever enjoyed the law. Learning to live in grace can take years. But when it finally clicks with us, it releases us from the fear of rejection and the endless lists of responsibilities. It keeps us from comparing ourselves with other people and it brings joy and peace to our life. And the benefits of grace far outweigh the familiarity of burden and the burden of the law. The law is a harsh master. But after a while, we get used to it and we feel comfortable with it. But grace, though it's scary at first, is liberating. It's freeing. Some of you, let me close with a story. Some of you um, may have seen the 1994 film Shawshank Redemption. It's a story about a banker named Andy who's accused of murdering his wife. He is innocent, but he's found guilty and put into prison. And in prison, Andy becomes good friends with another convict named Red. And one day, a friend of theirs was let out on parole after being in prison for almost his entire life. And this man who had lived his whole life in prison didn't know how to function when he was set free. So he ended up taking his own life. And Red and Andy are trying to understand all of that. And all they want is freedom. And they cannot understand why their friend would commit suicide after gaining his freedom. And Red and Andy are sitting in prison in the courtyard, staring at the, uh, the dingy gray walls, and Red says, at first you hate these walls, then you get used to them. Then you can't think that you can't live without them. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to teach about the law. It's like living as a prisoner living with boundaries and stone walls and chains. And it sounds bad, but when people get used to it, they can't imagine living any other way. And that's why many convicts, when they gain their freedom, struggle uh, with functioning in society. Well, the movie ends with Andy escaping prison and going to Mexico where he starts a charter fishing company and Red gets paroled and he also goes down to Mexico to help with this new company and neither of them knows what the future holds or whether the company will be successful or not or where they will even get their next meal at first. But they're taking a risk. They are free. They are both doing what they've always dreamed of doing. And in Jesus' picture, that is what grace is. Jesus wants us to do things in a whole new way. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5 said, he says he comes to make all things new. As the great physician, he offers new life, and he offers spiritual health. As the bridegroom, he offers new love, and he offers joy. And as a creator, he makes us into new creations and gives us a new spirit, and the greatest of all, as Savior, he gives us his grace to live by. No more living under the bondage of the law. Like Galileo, Jesus was ev eventually put to death for the changes that he brought to that culture. But how grateful we can be for those changes, because the new way 
is a life of celebration. And it's a life of joy. Pray with me. We love you, Lord, because although we find it hard to understand what you are always saying to us, you are always helping us on this spiritual journey and we can depend on you for sure and careful and just guidance. May we always hear what you are saying to us through your word. And with your help, live it out until you come again and we are transformed in your glory. In the name of Christ we pray.